for this afternoon's worship service comes from Lord's Day 5. You can find Lord's Day 5 on page 521 of your book of praise. Lord's Day 5 is the start of the next section of the catechism titled Our Deliverance. Lord's Day 5, question and answer 12 through 15, we read... Since according to God's righteous judgment, we deserve temporal and eternal punishment, how can we escape this punishment and be again received into favor? God demands that his justice be satisfied. Therefore, we must make full payment either by ourselves or through another. Can we by ourselves make this payment? Certainly not. On the contrary, we daily increase our debt. Can any mere creature pay for us? No. In the first place, God will punish another creature for the sin which man has committed. Furthermore, no mere creature can sustain the burden of God's eternal wrath against sin and delivers others from it. What kind of mediator and deliverer must we seek? One who is true and righteous man and yet more powerful than all creatures, that is, one who is at the same time true God. The sermon I am reading this afternoon comes from the hand of Reverend Reuben Bradenhoff, minister of the Free Reformed Church of Mount Nasura, Western Australia. He prepared this sermon when he served as, of min, uh, as minister of the St. Albert Canadian Reformed Church. After the sermon, we will sing standing Psalm 6, six stanzas one and two. Beloved congregation of our Lord and Savior, we value those things the greatest for which a dear price has been paid. Yes, we all love a bargain, but often our attachment is something to something is the strongest when we've really felt its cost, whether in the pocketbook or in body or mind. For that nice $7 jacket or for the high mark on an easy pop quiz, our excitement fades as quickly as it flared up. Easy come, easy go. But for that expensive ring or that hard-fought accomplishment, our excitement and thanksgiving remain firm and even increases over time. When it comes to God's grace, it seems the same simple truth can apply. We value those things the greatest for which a dear price has been paid. Now grace by definition, by definition is free. God's forgiving love is given without consideration of persons, but is bestowed as a free gift on the undeserving sinner, and God asks no price in return. Grace is free, but that doesn't mean it comes cheap. Of course, no one would ever say that God's grace is cheap. To many ears, that word suggests low price coupled with low quality. If something comes cheap, it probably won't last. You'd never see a sign in front of a church advertising, come here for a message of cheap grace. But through the way many Christians think of it, God's grace is tossed right into the bargain bin of your local dollar store. For God's grace is often pictured as God's desperate longing for a lost mankind. Like a love-struck teenager, God wants to have a relationship with us the desire of his heart. 
So it is thought God reaches out to us with his grace, like a teenage boy might reach out with flowers or chocolates to that pretty distant girl in his class, really hoping she'll respond. God's grace is thus made purely emotional. It is made resistible. It is made dependent on the so-called attractiveness of mankind. It is made into something that God just does. He has to show grace. As a sinner once shrugged, God is a good God. It is his job to forgive. But this, cheap, but this is cheap grace. This view makes God's grace one-dimensional, like the Hollywood facade of a frontier town building that is supposedly a bank, while in reality it is without depth or riches, security, or a foundation. With some things, we may be able to get away with low price and low quality, but not with salvation. The idea of cheap grace breeds malnourished Christians, but more seriously, the idea of cheap grace shows contempt for the riches of God's kindness, tolerance, and patience. Romans 2, verse 4. Instead, in our knowledge of doctrine, we may always strive for the tried and tested quality of the scriptures and the church's confessions. The teaching of, of the Bible on the cost of sinful mankind's grace, gracious deliverance is summarized in Lord's Day 5 of the Catechism. Here we will see, indeed, God's grace is free, but it comes at a high, but it, its cost is so high, it is uncountable, while its quality is guaranteed for life and for eternity. Counting the high cost of deliverance. First, we will see full payment is needed. And in the second place, many payers are excluded. And in thirdly, only one payer is accepted. With Lord's Day 5, we arrive at the next section of the Catechism concerning our deliverance. The Catechism deals with our sin, the catechism deals with our sin and misery for only three Lord's Days. Yet, perhaps by the end, you think enough of this doom and gloom. Indeed, it is disturbing to be confronted with those contrasts so plain, painfully and plainly. God's high demand and our miserably low performance. God's unfailing goodness and our constant failure, God's perfect justice, and our deserved penalty. But today we move on turning the pages on our sin. Yes, on to deliverance. Yet notice how the catechism begins to describe this light at the end of our gloomy tunnel. Since according to God's righteous judgment, we deserve temporal and eternal punishment. Right back into misery. Yet this is not a basking in darkness. It is proper humility before the throne of God. Beloved, let us begin our search for grace even every day with a full confession of guilt. In your sight, O God, we are sinners and we justly face our sentence of eternal death. Paul too is eager to get on with preaching the message of deliverance to the Ephesian church. For this was a congregation of former pagans who had been lost in sin even as Paul and every other Jew and human had been lost. Paul earnestly desires to proclaim the good news of free grace, yet where does he begin? As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sin, Ephesians 2, verse 1. And Paul confesses of himself and everyone, like the rest, we are also by nature objects of wrath, in verse 3. 
We know from Psalm 7 that God is a God of wrath. God is a righteous judge, a God who expresses his wrath every day. In verse 11, he is justly angry with sin. He is righteously furious with lawbreakers. He is terribly displeased with those he made in his image. Indeed, it is only fitting we all bow trembling before the greatness of our God, trembling because God holds our eternities in the palm of his hands. Can we escape our punishment? Can we be again received into his favor? We can. But not before the barrier, the dividing wall of of hostility is taken away. Ephesians 2 verse 14. What separates us from the love of God? Our stubborn rebellion. God cannot overlook the offense of our transgression and God cannot demand less than our perfection. So there are these two things we owe to God. For past sins, we owe him the total penalty. And for the present, continuing uninterrupted into the future, we owe him unblemished obedience. That's why the catechism asks the question as it does, how can we escape this punishment? And how can we begin, how can we be again received into favor? This is how it, this is how it is played out. In the courtroom of God, the charge is brought in against the defendant, namely you and me. After all the evidence is considered and the arguments are heard, the judge makes his decision, guilty as charged, and renders his sentence, eternal death. And this punishment must be carried to its fullest extent. No early release for good behavior, no parole, no day pass, nothing. Imagine, though, that somehow this eternal punishment could be paid fully by the punishment laid upon our backs. But once released, we could go back to God and be received into his favor and fellowship as if all had been well again with this world? No. For the very moment we are discharged from prison, we would sin against our creator again, starting the whole process over again. God's justice is not only negative, he will punish us for doing wrong, but it is also positive. He insists that we also do right. And who can meet these high demands? The full for justice of God must be satisfied. This satisfaction of God is not like our vague contentment after a good Sunday dinner, when we lean back in our chair and announce, I have had enough, I am satisfied. Rather, God's justice is satisfied when his expectations and demands are met to the fullest degree. There is nothing vague about his justice, but it is unavoidably exact. Here are my standards for doing good. Here are my standards for punishing wrong. And both must be filled up right to the brim. As the catechism says, full payment must be made. Payment is always giving something for something. Payment fulfills an obligation of something owed. It's, when, it's like when you get a new couch. You must pay for that couch. But the payment we owe God is also unlike paying for that new couch for money or anything else we bring to the table, is simply unable to satisfy his justice fully. In Psalm 49, the sons of Korah instruct us to be about rich fools, fools who did not think money could buy their lives from God and save their souls from the grave. 
Indeed, there are those who put their trust in their wealth and possessions. Yet even if we aren't among those so-called wealthy, this danger threatens. We think of our car, would we think our car can save us? Never. Would we pray to our RSP at night? Definitely not. Yet, just like those rich fools, could the attractiveness of all the stuff of this life hinder us in really understanding how great a payment we owe God? It certainly could. But here's Psalm 49, verse 7 through 9. No man can redeem the life of another or give, God, give to God a ransom for him. The ransom for life is costly. No payment is ever enough. That he should live on forever and, and not see decay. Never put his truth from your mind. The ransom to God for my life is costly. Everlasting death for a lifetime of sin and perfect obedience forevermore. The full price is needed. Yet the full price remains outstanding. And that brings us to our second point. Many payers are excluded. To make a point, we imagine earlier that somehow the heavy penalty for sin was able to be carried out by mankind. Yet that's all it was, imagination. For, sin, uh, for a sinner is able to bear being cursed and cut off from the face of God, the source of life itself and all our protection and blessing? Psalm 130 verse three asks the same question. If you, O Lord, kept the record of sins, O Lord, who could stand? When a king in ancient times sat on his throne, people of all sorts would be ushered into his presence and stand and present their case. And though the king was always higher, perched on his throne, it was an old friend or a loyal supporter who could stand before the king. Those persons who had done the king a favor or who had paid him a gift at one time could stand and reasonably expect a listening ear and a gracious response. But the poor, the outcasts, and the unconnected would not dare stand in the king's presence. Who were they? And what had they done what had they ever done for the powerful Lord? So they'd be on the floor before him, bowed down, even with their face on the floor. And when a convict or a prisoner of war was called before the throne for judgment, his self-humiliation would be even deeper. He would throw his entire body flat on the cold tile that the king might, if only, have mercy and spare his life, spare the life of this pathetic creature. Maybe the king's heart would be softened by this sorry sight, or maybe it wouldn't. If you, O Lord, kept the record of sins, O Lord, who could stand? We could not. We and we dare not stand in God's presence, for our misdeeds follow us. We can claim to be no loyal supporter nor generous giver to our king. Rather, he knows all about our sinful past, and the Lord has no patience for repeat offenders. We are excluded from deliverance by our past, and we are excluded by our present. We'd never have enough time to pay. Remember the unmerciful servant in the parable in Matthew 18, he who was graciously forgiven a debt of millions of dollars, yet could not forgive his brother, brother's debt of a couple bucks. In the end, he was thrown into prison until he could pay back what he owed. The parable doesn't tell us whatever happened to that ungrateful servant in debtor's prison. 
but be sure of this, he never got out. Indeed, maybe he was put, into, put to work in jail, like Samson was in Gaza. The eyeless Samson was set grinding wheat, turning a heavy millstone, Judges 16, verse 21. Around and around he trudged, sweating and groaning with every circuit on the well-worn path, four times around in a minute, 240 times around in an hour, 1,500 times around in the morning. Yet could he ever repay his debt to the Flintstones? Never. Samson had simply taken too many lives. Or could the unmerciful servant ever repay his debt to his master? Never. He owed simply too much money. The ransom for a life is costly. No repayment is ever enough. Psalm 49, verse 7. Still there are those who attempt to save their own souls, or at least pay a little of the cost. I'll cover this part of the tab, God. Thanks for all your help, but I've got the rest. We'll pay, we'll pay God for his grace, or we think we'll pay God for his grace. With our pious prayers or extensive knowledge or our big contributions to the church or even our physical and mental suffering, try to avoid it, if it, but you cannot. Whenever we make a hearty effort at any task or calling on a job site for our spouse, spouse or kids at school, also in faith, our first human thought is surely this counts as for something. But consider the cost of our salvation. It is not a financial cost. It is not a devotional cost. It is not a temporal cost. It is not a physical cost. It is a legal cost. We of weak body and mind must perfectly bear the punishment of law, and we habitual sinners must perfectly keep the demands of the law. Who would dare volunteer himself to even to pay even a little bit of this massive price? There are those billboards on the sides of our busy roads. Debt trouble, we can help. But is there help for what we owe to God? The catechism did say payment could be made either by ourselves or by another. Question and answer 12. If someone or something could legally stand in our place and fill both measures of God's justice, we could again be received into favor. So can an animal do this for us? An animal can suffer, an animal can be killed, but an animal cannot endure the, the heat of God's anger. It is true. God's accepted, God accepted the sacrifice from the people of Israel so, and so forgave their sins, but only because a greater sacrifice was coming. Romans 3, verse 25 through 26. On their own, these sacrifices were, ju were just unthinking goats and bulls who had their necks sliced and their life drained out of them. Hebrews 10, verse 4. Even if, an animal, even if animal blood was able to appease God's wrath for human sin, soulless animals wouldn't be killed for the sake of our sin. Not because of what the humane society might think, might think but because of what God's word clearly says, the soul who sins shall die. Exodus 18, verse four. Given the bill of, for what is owed to God, I must confess I cannot do it. Neither can an animal do it, even man's best friend, and no other human can do it for me either. 
for very rarely will anyone die for a righteous man, though for a good man some, someone might possibly dare to die. Romans 5, verse 17. I am neither righteous nor good. What person would die for me? Beloved, we are all without hope and a payer. The full cost of our deliverance remains outstanding, and that leads us to our third point. Only one payer is accepted. If we could listen to Yersinius and Olivianus themselves read the last question of for this Lord's Day, we might well expect to hear a note of, of desperation in their voices. Who then is able to help us sinners appear before the righteous God and also live? We expect desperation, yet these brothers are humbled in their sin, not anxious in their guilt. For theirs is a telling transition. Throughout the Lord's day on our sin and misery, and even into the beginning Lord's day on our deliverance, we stand very much on our own. Alone we are given the task of keeping God's high requirements. Alone we face the accusation of breaking God's commandments. Alone we are confronted with the evidence that we were once able to obey it, obey but did not. Alone we receive the verdict of guilty and alone we are expected to bear the just penalty for our guilt. One is the loneliest number, but now appears in this last question and answer, a mediator and a deliverer. We do not have to look for our deliverance in anxious desperation, for, for it's been provided by God himself. In his grace, God will accept us if someone pays what we could not. This payer needs to be fully able to understand us as man and stand for us as God. He is a mediator who brings the hostile sides together, but not through diplomacy and compromise and reassuring words as we expect of our mediators today. For there is no compromise. God would, sit, would not sit at the bargaining table with mankind if his unchanging requirements had not been met. Full justice through full punishment and full obedience. This is still the high cost for, of our deliverance. Our mediator isn't introduced until Lord's Day 6, but praise God, his identity is no secret. We read in 1 Timothy 2, there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Jesus Christ, who gave himself as a ransom for all men. Verse five. For all men, the ransom to God for even one life comes at a cost we cannot understand. The cost breakdown is as, simple as, and is as simple and as profound as this. One curse to be born, one eternity to give, one life of perfect obedience to live. But Christ paid it in full, not just one sinner, but for all who put their trust in him. This is the uncountable cost of grace, completely paid, so that God on his throne can lift us up from the floor, stand us on our feet, and even welcome us to his banqueting table. In Christ, Psalm 49 verse 15 is fulfilled. But God will redeem my life from the grave. He will surely take me to himself. In a time when God's grace is often, em is often emptied of its meaning, let us strive for a proper and scriptural understanding of our deliverance. For if God's grace is cheap, how can we ever be sure of our salvation? If God's grace is cheap, 
Why should we be thankful with every bone in our bodies? If God, God's grace is considered cheap, how can we rightly honor our great God and Savior? Instead, know that it wasn't easy for God to forgive. He had to give up his own son. This free yet costly grace announced in the scriptures alone gives us confidence standing before God's throne. If we know how much it took to restore us to fellowship with God, we will, care, we will have every reason to be bold in prayer and steadfast in faith. In our sin, even when our guilt sweeps up to our necks and over our heads, we can know that God's grace is not some passing fancy. It is not easy come, easy go. God's grace is committed, established, and firm, even when we are unstable as the wind. This free yet costly deliverance must make humble servants, humble before God, and humble before our brothers and sisters. Humble because we couldn't even pay a dime of what we owed. Not a dime, yet it is fully paid through Jesus Christ. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not from ourselves, it is a gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. Ephesians 2, verse 8 through 9. Brothers and sisters, let us count the cost of our deliverance, for it is true. We value those things the greatest for which a dear price has been paid. May we count the cost and the value above anything else our salvation. Amen.